From Rixie, this is Frameform. Hello and welcome, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. We're back, baby. We are back. And today, um, well, today we are droning. We are talking about flying objects, some of which record film. Now, when it comes to drone cinematography, many cinematographers now have a drone in their arsenal. And they're very user-friendly, they're very lightweight, and you actually don't need a whole lot of skill to capture some pretty spectacular images. However, um, there are a lot of things that you need to consider when it comes to uh, owning a drone and shooting with drones. And these considerations run the gamut from legal ones to ethical ones to artistic ones. And we will be discussing all of those uh, over the course of the episode. As always, we've selected a few films linked in the show notes for you to watch and listen along that we think are really good, inspiring examples of the possibilities of what we can do with drones. I have a question, Claire. Um, Go for it. You recently acquired a drone, correct? Indeed, I did. I have been uh, flying it quite a bit lately, actually, too. And what what drew you to go that route to buy a drone and start learning about it or learning how to use it? Well, I've, like both of you, have probably seen quite a few films uh, over the years that incorporate drone cinematography. And it's a very, and drones literally add a whole nother angle to the potential for choreography that you see on screen. And unlike previous ways, like if you wanted to capture a direct overhead shot of um, like a a pattern of movement, so a la um, something like the William Forsyth one flat being reproduced, you would have to mount your camera directly over that. And that is really, really difficult to do. (laughs) And uh, you could be um, out a camera by the end of it. But with drones, you can capture these moments much more easily, much more safely, and much more steadily. And not only that, you can actually move with them quite a bit as well. I was really interested in the ways that um, people were using drones to dance with the people we were seeing on screen. And uh, I attended several panels, and I got into this website, this excellent website, uh, Women Who Drone, (laughs) <laughs> that has that. a great <laughs> a great primer uh, for anyone who's interested in um, learning about drone cinematography. And as always, we will have that linked in the show notes. I love that you mentioned that tradition of overhead shots and these aspirational things that we want to see in films and also in our own films. I find that when I see anything shot on a drone, it instantly looks more cinematic. Um, Another thing that we talk about in film is this idea of a floating camera and a drone is literally a floating object. So you immediately have this floating camera and hopefully something with a smooth flight and good remote control. I really love how this show in our jumping around to different kinds of technologies or different trends that we see, there's these underlying uh, themes that connect them. And I think one thing that this is resonating with for me is that increasingly we see 
consumer access to technology that a short time ago would have been extremely expensive and limited to professionals. Yeah, I mean, drones actually before they were even used by these aerial photographers that we know and love today, I mean, they were only exclusively used in the military, for instance. I mean, the Mm -hmm. first drone that was successfully done was actually in a hot air balloon in 1858 which i find fascinating that they actually put a camera on a hot air balloon fact i mean they've done a series of other things uh they've also experimented with kites balloons pigeons i was reading (laughs) really (laughs) insane to think about from what we know from movies seeing helicopter shots shot from above and that was like the only way we could get these kinds of shots. But now we have, you know, not that Radio Shack is alive anymore, but you know, you can go to Best Buy, Amazon, uh, B&H, Photo, all of the above to go get a drone um, for a not very high price. Um, unlike what you could get years ago in the, like the 1980s when that's, what we know of today is absolutely I, I miss Radio Shack I miss those massage chairs <laughs> well later in today's episode we're gonna talk more about some best practices and suggestions if you are going to be filming with the drone but first we're gonna talk about some specific examples of films and I think a perfect transition from you talking about military and right. <laughs> surveillance Hannah is targeted advertising a uh, film by Mitchell Rose. I remember when this film first came out uh, in 2015. I think it was submitted to Screen Dance Collective. I think, actually, to be honest, at this time when drone photography was coming out, everyone was doing it. And yep. I noticed, like, also a lot of, like, commercial work or, like, low-budget commercial work being done with drone cameras. And I kind of just had a sour feeling towards them because I was like oh they just they just did it with a drone because they have it and they could do all this cool stuff um you know years later as I'm watching it um to prep for this episode I'm like you know this is actually a really cool way of using it as well as like also knowing the history of what drone drones were doing you know spotting people of interest and you know, spying on them, keeping an eye on them. I applaud you, Mitchell, for coming up with something like this, you know, talking about like history and the present now um, with this kind of film. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think it's hilarious since this film did come out quite some time ago and the it actually takes place in 2023, which uh, next year be next year. <laughs> Sounded so far in the future. And can you imagine if you had told ourselves back then, hey, there's going to be a global pandemic (laughs) (laughs) or like half the stuff that happened. Oh, my. We would have been like, nah, I don't believe you. We're just going to sit back and uh, I guess listen, listen to Grimes, who's, you know, this up and coming indie (laughs) (laughs) songstress. But yeah, and uh, Anna, you bring up a great point as far as uh, just how, how the proliferation of technology. And I think that, that we want to be clear that we don't you don't want to approach 
film in a techno fetishist manner. You don't necessarily want to show off the latest cool trend. Yeah. Because that actually dates the film pretty severely. So, for example, um, in my first days with the San Francisco Dance Film Festival, we saw uh, some Google Glass films and mm. look at how that aged. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Blee Mitchell really actually um, had his finger on the pulse here. And especially looking at this film now, it's honestly aged uh, scarily accurately, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of felt uncomfortable and specific and uh, almost too on the nose when I first saw it, to be honest. Like, I didn't, I, I liked it, but I was like, it made me feel uncomfortable. And I think it's designed to to be that way, obviously. But I also felt like at that time, I don't think there was this same widespread awareness of like data mining and how our phones are spying on us already. And it's interesting how it feels less scary when it's the thing in your hand spying on you versus that thing flying around in the sky. Right. When I changed phones, literally, like it did that exactly like my older phone didn't you know pick up on the things of you know what I'm talking about who I should call uh what I should buy and then when I upgraded my phone literally like I I feel like the thing is thinking what I'm thinking it's listening to you (laughs) I have it on airplane mode right now so um good who knows what it what it's reading right now But yeah, I think that that this film really exemplifies one of the criticisms of the use of drones in films is that sort of this overhead shot conveys this feeling of surveillance, like something, some other body is watching you. And even if it's done in a completely benign way, that can still read on the on the image itself. And a lot of that, Hannah, as you mentioned earlier, is that the drones, at least before they became commercially available um, objects for visual capture are primarily used in military situations or war situations. So there's this risk uh, that some may approach using drone capture in a way that they might play a video game as if like it gives them free reign to go into these spaces that they wouldn't otherwise go into. And while there's some beauty in being able to catch capture that as expanse, when you're doing that, do you necessarily have the consent of all involved, like the owners of the private property that you see to be in that image? Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. I mean, when I lived out West, I mean, drone photography, it was huge. Like I would be at a park and, you know, I'm looking at a waterfall and then I see a drone up in the air, (laughs) you know, someone is capturing it and I see them like, you know, a couple feet away from me, not very far. And, I got used to that and when I moved back east I rarely see them because we're I mean it's much more densely populated on this side of the country and what's interesting about that too like I mean people also are way more not into them like just as a general public they just don't want to see them at all Mm -hmm. whereas like if you watch some videos um on YouTube with some of these influencers I mean Casey Neistat, for for instance, 
you know, he puts that thing up like it's like all the time as if it was like uh, the baby Yoda, you know, yeah. it's just following him <laughs> in it while he's driving his car and they're okay with that. I mean, that's probably just like an L.A. thing, you know, YouTube universe kind of thing. But uh, it's very strange how there's this love hate relationship with public versus private and all that stuff. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it is a regional difference because the Delmarva region, there is so much of an intelligence right. community right. and a lot of people that really are working for the government that the chances that really would be a government or you know military drone of some kind mm-hmm. is pretty likely. So I think that in L.A. you have this culture of people that are creative yep. and make things and it's so it, – it's on the other – side of the country but it's also the mentality is so different that i think the paranoia and the different things that people are going to be concerned about are not the same right absolutely yeah same thing in the bay area too there are so i mean you see a lot of drones flying around like i mean even like just at christmas you'll see a whole bunch of kids who have their drones who fly them and the thing (laughs) about drones you hear them before you see them they are loud yeah And that's also something that you have to consider if you're making creative work, specifically if you're thinking of capturing a move, that all you're going to hear is just the whir of that drone. That could be alarming to people. That could be alarming to the performers. So you may want to consider how you're using it um, and modifying its use around the performances. Also related to security concerns is that um, drones, specifically DJI drones, have a lot of um, caveats when you use them. I found that with the DJI Osmo. It is still my favorite camera to shoot on, period. Um, It's a gimbal, but the sound of the camera for years was overwhelming. Thank goodness we're doing dance film and don't need the actual audio for whatever we're recording. Definitely, definitely. If you're doing sync sound, you may want to reconsider using a drone on um, <laughs> on location. And likewise, with the DJI products, I don't want to get too far into the tinfoil hat area, but <laughs> it is a Chinese company, and there actually have been national con- security concerns with regards to how data that is captured on them, which, again, these, these objects can capture a huge range. Um, there's a lot of questions as to how that's being used. So I need to reconsider my life. Interesting. <laughs> I did not know this. I didn't know that about this company. I mean, I've literally never downloaded TikTok on my phone ever mm-hmm. Same. for that very reason, along with a number of other apps. But so many companies, not DJI. So many companies yeah. use DJI drones. Yeah, like, that's that's my gimbal. Everything good has to get ruined. Right. Yeah. And DJI currently owns the drone market and for good reason they're i mean wow. very user friendly but it's good stuff they you know, you do operate the drones with your phone you have to connect your phone that and, is you know, true turn on, that is turn true. on all the gps options for that so Interesting. um so certainly before you buy a drone or if you're considering flying one definitely do your research definitely look into it and look into uh, recommended security settings um from parties other than dgi for your device with all this talk about, let's say, voyeurism, 
You know, like drones are very voyeuristic. I mean, cameras in general are voyeuristic. Uh, someone is controlling it. Something is controlling it. Uh, and you definitely have a body experience when watching these films from that bird's eye angle that you rarely see. I mean, the some of the instances that you're ever going to get see these kind of moments are maybe you're high up in a building, maybe a tree, <laughs> uh, a playground, uh, when you're at the top, highest point of the slide, whatever. Um, so that's what I always feel when I'm watching these films. And I definitely love the experience of seeing new angles. In this case, the Shadow Drone Project, uh, led by Charles Linehan, uh, this is a 2018 project. It, I really loved what moments were being introduced throughout this exploration of the drone. It reminded me a lot of some of the films that we spoke about last year, um, such as Clouded with Will Johnston, as well as Vortices, um, another favorite of the podcast. Desert plus drone films. Desert drone films. In this case, we had like more just like open, barren landscapes and seeing these kind of tiny little moments of people moving or just doing regular things or even uh, there was moments where there's laundry on the line being just blown in the wind. Uh, there was one moment that I saw that I really loved that kind of reminded me of Palopolis's uh, Shadowland um, where you know they played around with the angles and the people in the space and what is being exaggerated with the shadows and the light, creating something totally new and different. Uh, what were your thoughts watching this work? Really appreciate how specific um, Charles is approaching this project. Um, I think it would be safe to call this much more of an experimental project or on the side of experimentation, but it is very focused. And I feel that that really captures the intention of um reframing the movement that we're seeing now specifically um the captures are taking place both towards the beginning of the day and the end of the day in order to create these long shadows and these long shadows themselves then produce a very unique kind of movement on screen that really is only possible to see with those drones and yeah hannah as you mentioned like it's very palabalist like in that uh really the shadow is the way that we perceive the movement and we get a different kinesthetic experience from that as well. This is loosely related to dance film, but directly related to shadow play. There's this company called Manual Cinema uh, based out of Chicago. Yes. And we've seen them live once and like their logos an overhead projector because at the same time you're watching them live on stage using cutouts and props and, sh and live performance. Um, and all sorts of tools. They're also up top projecting basically what they're doing, playing out as a movie. Mm. And it is absolutely mind-blowing, incredible art. And it's just so powerful, the mystery and the symbolism associated with shadows. There's something about it being darkness but connected to you but revealed. Of course, we always... I'm, I'm sure a lot of us think about Peter Pan mm -hmm. and the shadow. Like, there's all this weight that comes with this idea or integrating your shadow or your shadow self. Um, it's really rich with symbolism. And again, I feel like the floating camera, the high angles, the kind of 
exaggeration of heights that you can get. And the shadows are all things about drone cinematography that just make things that much more epic, regardless of what you're filming. I love that you pointed out that technical memo, by the way, Claire, that it has to be near the beginning or the end of the day for long Mm -hmm, shadows. mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that people that work in film production and people that love nature would understand. Definitely, definitely. And time of day is also very important uh, when you consider drone cinematography because you do not want that drone shadow in your shot. (laughs) Oh, definitely not. Shout out to the... That would be so brutal. Shout out to the VFX supervisors who are matting that shit out. (laughs) We'll fix it in post. One of the most triggering statements you can say. True that. True that. But yeah, Jen, that's a really lovely uh, thought about shadows. And I think that something else that's good to know, and this may be getting to way deeper than it needs to be. Oh, never. The fact that the speed of light is insanely fast, but light hits your body before the shadow appears. So in essence, the shadow (laughs) is always following you both in space and in time. And yeah, I think that there's something really beautiful about that. I love that. I hadn't thought about it on that level. And I don't think it's too deep. I think that's one of the great things about these sorts of conversations. I know that when we, and uh, thank you for mentioning clouded earlier, Hannah, like I know when we show clouded, it doesn't matter what age group or, you know, the demographic or background of the audience, whoever sees that film, one of the most staying impressions as far as favorite shots visually or just things that are beautiful to experience, it is those dancing shadows that again, you could get shadows on stage, but it's not the same as what you can get with the flexible perspective of literally a flying camera. It's funny, that song that's used, the um, LCD sound system, The Great Release, like every time I listen to that song, I always think of that moment where we see those dancers and I just get these goosebumps yeah. and I get it's in hypnotic. the move. It's so great. Oh, it's so such, It's so mesmerizing. I love yeah. it. And I think that especially when you're using drones in a desert, they really do wonders as far as establishing what your mise-en-scene is. And especially if you can find maybe that one moment where all you see is just the expanse of the land, you can create that impression for the audience that that is really, that endless expanse is the world that these characters are living in. And it's interesting that in total contrast to that, we have our final film lying together directed by Corey Baker, which is completely integrated with the lines and the visuals of the environment. But it's this actually quite claustrophobic city environment in a lot of scenes mixed with these organic elements in between. So what did you like about this film? Because I know I got a lot to say, but I'm going to let one of you start off. This film is totally wow factor. I mean, that's one of the questions I wrote down for this is like, uh, when you're watching a drone film, are they just using it for the sake of the drone versus the wow factor? Always. Um, being creative with this. I think this one was like wow factor, but also being thoughtfully creative with it. Um, especially when we notice the moment that they're not just dancing in nature. They're also in nature on top of a scri- skyscraper. And that was such a great moment to realize like, oh, like this is you know, about not just nature and dancing with it or celebrating it. It's more about 
you know, industry and man-made structures living within nature and how they coincide together, which is a huge topic within, uh, you know, Japan and uh, China, a huge conversation. I think regardless of the details of dance or drones or anything that we're really focused on today on like a very bare bones level, something that's so effective about the storytelling or the technique with this video or this film is I think the use of suspense and surprise and predictability because it's so balanced and predictable and like the leading lines and the movements, everything is so beautifully orchestrated. It's kind of part city symphony, part like H and M campaign, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's just got that kind of summer city, like pastel soft palette it's just so gorgeous but it it it, on a technical level plays a lot with suspense and surprise and you're so right when it finally pulls out to that overhead view of the skyscraper you're like oh wait they're in a garden oh wait they're on a rooftop oh wait that's a really crazy view of the city I'm kind of scared right now to be honest yeah Um, it's just so masterfully done and they do it over and over again in this video and it really goes to the intention of the video to begin with so this was made for world environmental day to promote awareness and impact of climate change and uh cory himself was actually mentioning that there's a movement uh, as hannah mentioned in um in Hong Kong to bring back some green spaces and bring back more more of the natural environment into a very built, a very, very densely built world. And I think that the incorporation of these drone shots really does show that, well, for A, it provides a contrast to the, the ground level shots in that it shows just how little of this, this greenery compares to the vast surroundings of the city that these really are these little oases in what is a wholly urban environment and something else about this film that um, also relates to current events is that a lot of this film was shot during the protest in Hong Kong that knowledge does kind of affect the way that I view the film because on one hand it's incredible that they're able to make this work in during such a time of tumult but on the other, we don't see any indication of that resonate in the film at all. And so it also brings that notion of strategic framing back into it in that we're framing this as if this is sort of an evergreen scenario or this evergreen environment, but it's really an environment that's under a lot of tumult. Well, and the power of production value, I mean, to disguise what is really quite a dire and serious situation and make it essentially look like a fashion campaign um, is really interesting. And of course, like I'm just always in awe when we receive films from, from countries that, you know, comparatively speaking on a day-to-day basis, there's just, you know, if they're in wartime or if there are other, um, economic struggles, like they can't send money out of the country, is really amazing that these people are still artistically active and making work and sending it out internationally to be seen. It's just incredibly inspiring and humbling. Yeah, I mean, overall, this film is, I would say, it's considered to be complex, you know, uh, not with just the things or actions that are happening in 
the city and the community at that time. But I mean, going back to what this film is all about with the World Environment uh, Day action that we have here at the that is being shown also very clearly at the end um, through text, you know, I mean, the pollution problem out there is insane. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's <laughs> just watch all the Studio Ghibli movies. They were ma- they were wearing masks <laughs> well before COVID. Let's just say. Oh, yeah, yeah, just thinking about how to improve the environment in some kind of way. Um, as I think back right now, where they're holding and hugging the <laughs> uh, the potted plants, you know, that's just a start when you think about it. You know, like these are mm-hmm. things that you could um, put within your home or in your surroundings uh, to elevate that side of nature. Um, at, at first, I was like, this is kind of funny and weird that they're holding <laughs> these potted plants that they got at their local store. But, they, but then as I think about it, I was like, okay, I can see what the bigger message there is, you know, by simply just purchasing a plant to, you know, help. But other than that, going back to drone photography, <laughs> I I have this one question for everyone here. We looked at three films that are very, uh, you know, different from each other in regards to drone photography being used. I mean, besides lying together, that is incorporating the drone. A lot of other camera tools are being used in this. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is, how do we still stay inventive with dance drone filmmaking without it being a, you know, we're just here to show the landscape or showing the above nature i mean claire you've mentioned you want to dance with the drone how can we make that interesting without it being another replica in a different location right well i actually want to shout out the work of someone we've already interviewed on the show uh scotty harwig who's actually um looking exploring these questions and some of the work that he's doing as far as taking the drone out of the direct overhead surveillance state and have the drone be more at the body level of the dancers so that they can truly be in space with it and really respond to it and have the drone respond to what they're doing as well. So I think that um, bringing the drone more on the level of the dancer and really exploiting the possibilities of it for movement and for, for response as well. I also want to shout out another film that, um, incorporates some of this technique as well um, from friend of the show, Robin G. Yay. Um, Hi, Robin. Yeah. In in her film, uh, Wanting, which was actually also created at Experimental Film Virginia. Again, another shout out to another friend of the show. Yay. Hi, Renata. It was shot with several different cameras that have different um, picture profiles associated with them, which is another thing about drones that you have to consider. And one of the big drawbacks is that the image is super super digital most drones i mean some even shoot 8k most of them are 4k models but they really do um occasionally have a sterile effect when they come when the image comes in so i think that really thinking about the ways that you can manipulate the image and really start to think about the world and the the look that you're creating on screen i love that you mentioned combining cameras as well because i noticed that with tonight's films that 
while it can be very impressive in its own way to have a single take, um, you know, on all sorts of levels, those are interesting to watch and study and choreograph. It's also very effective when you have a more mixed vocabulary and more dynamic choices to choose between. And on the same note, I, I love what you said about Scotty changing the level of the camera. And it got me thinking about how, you know, for a general audience and for people that might be on a more introductory level, maybe, or just for people that love a good story, stories and characters and having some sort of clear vehicle or framework can be really helpful. And I imagine like what sort of character could a drone play? Exactly. How could you use a drone in a way that previously might have been animated or done with some sort of fly rig or crane or anything that previously we were limited with? You know, there's kind of a combination of what is cinematic that we know that is classic and what is super experimental that maybe we've never seen, but actually we've got the ability to try it now. I think that's where the magic really happens. Snap, 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 snap. (laughs) (laughs) Mentioning earlier about like voyeurism and bodily feeling, um, one film that really uh, gave that feeling to me um, outside of dance film was Hiroshima Mon Amour. And there's these moments where there's, you feel like you're floating. And that whole movie, it's all about like memory and dreaming and what you remember versus what you're making up in your mind. And I would love to see that in drone dance filmmaking in some kind of way. I mean, I wouldn't say there's like a lot of drone dance films out there. There are, but I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't say that we have ones that are maybe like, being written about or you know being pushed to a certain limit that you can do but that's something that I really crave to further that motion of you know floating yeah it's like less flying a spectacle and more just like embodying right yes yes after listening to this our audience might have uh, some questions about well they might have a lot of questions about drones and things related to drones but As someone who is actually working through uh, the process of learning how to fly and uh, sort of the the strings attached to that, I'm more than happy to share some of my experience with that so far. One uh, very, very important page I will link in the show notes is a map of regulated and restricted airspace. So awesome. Thank you for providing that. Yeah. Yes. Just happened to have this handy. Why did my drone get shot down? Exactly. Why did my drone get shot down? Why are the police showing up? Why is this person saying they can just take my drone away from me? Well, this map should tell you why. No matter what, you have to fly under uh, 400 feet. So 400 feet is your cap, uh, whether um, you're licensed or recreational. However, if you live close to an airport and if you live in New York or the D.C. area or the Bay Area, you're surrounded by airports, big and small, uh, you have a lot of restrictions as to how far you can fly. There's actually a whole swath of the Bay Area that's uh, between three airports that you actually cannot fly at all, even if you are licensed. So definitely get to know where it's okay to fly and where it's not okay to fly at all. Because if you are flying in restricted airspace, then um, really what happens to 
the drone is completely out of your hands. I feel like the phrase no fly zone is widely used as a sort of saying, but you're literally talking about these are legal no fly zones. Your stuff's going to get shot down. You can't get it back. Sorry, not sorry. So Bye. so area area 51 is off limits. Yeah, that's a, a, also another thing. Don't fly over government facilities. Don't fly over sports stadiums or emergencies such as fire. I actually have heard of quite a few sports events uh, postponed because of drones. Also, do not fly them onto private property because there actually have been documented cases of people seeing drones outside their windows and then being burgled. So a lot of areas, uh, specifically residential areas, actually have regulations against flying drones because they don't, obviously they don't want people spying in your yard. And that also goes for outdoor spaces, such as national parks, because national parks are essentially government land. You're not allowed to fly drones within the parks. Sorry if you want to you know, go to Joshua Tree and capture some sites. Um, you can't actually fly inside the park. If you plan to fly commercially, or to boil that down more simply, if you want to make money off of this, you have to have to have your FAA Part 107 license. Now, the FAA Part 107 is actually a very, very difficult test, and but it does authorize you to fly in spaces that maybe you wouldn't normally be able to fly recreationally. And also, it's worth taking it because a lot of the information you learn on that test with regards to, with regards to aerial objects are balanced and how they react with air and how you control them are good to know. So even if you don't plan to fly commercially, um, it's still good to have that kind of information. Any other questions so far? I feel like I got my license. <laughs> well, the beautiful thing about this podcast format is that we have even more goodies in the show notes. So thank you so much, Claire, for sharing your expertise so generously, as you always do, um, in this very specific focus area that I know I don't have much experience in. And certainly after just spending a little bit of time learning about it, I'm like, wow, I should totally, whatever I'm shooting next, get a drone for it. Um, I don't think it's this exotic, unknown thing that it used to be um, years ago. So I love that we got to discuss a few really great examples today, but of course balance it out with some real concrete takeaways. Yeah. There's so many angles that you have to think about whenever you're flying. You have you certainly have to think about it from a legal angle, but also ethically and of course artistically. There's so many things that you have to consider. It's not it's not just like the, you know, the steady cam that you see in front of the red wall that goes woo. Right. Woo. You can't just, you know, fly Fly a drone right up in the air and expect that to speak for your film. As always, if you, you just ride on the technology, it becomes a gimmick and you lose major mm -hmm. opportunities to create something truly awesome. So thank you for sharing some tools today so that our listeners can maybe dip their toes into that. And while everyone is up in the air, I'm going to, you know, put my camera on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, this was a great episode. Um, I'm going to go fly on 
I'm going to go find some uh, unidentified flying objects. Ooh, take me with you. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. If you like what you're hearing, leave a review and rate the show. It really helps out. And if you know someone who also likes dance or film, join the conversation and bring your friends. 